0: Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Words and Images. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the novel A Voice Beyond Reason and the travel story collection With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco. In February 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on-air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Words and Images podcast feature segments from that radio show, in which I converse with writers, photographers, filmmakers, and more. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Okay, let's try this here. Uh, Tim, are you there?
1: Yeah, but I can hardly hear you now.
0: Okay, you can hardly hear me. Let's see. Let's turn off Charlie Puth here. Does that help at all?
1: Um,
2: Say something for me.
0: I'm talking. I'm talking. I'm talking. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
2: No, I wish I could hear you a little louder.
0: Uh, Okay, I'm gonna turn up my mic. Um, It's pretty loud here in the studio. Hopefully, it's not gonna. Does that help at all? Does that help?
1: Again, please.
0: Uh, Can you hear me? Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I can hear you, but it's a little. Well. We'll, we'll stumble
0: through. Okay, we're going to stumble through because uh, I've got it turned up pretty. It's about to uh, blow our little system here. So, like you said, we'll stumble through, I guess. Let me uh, thank you for your, your patience as we figured out the, uh, the technical stuff here. Let me do your intro and then we'll try to stumble through. All
2: right.
0: All right. Tim Cahill is a founding editor of Outside Magazine. His work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Field and Stream, Esquire. The New York Times Book Review, National Geographic, National Geographic Traveler, and many others. Uh, Cahill has won numerous awards, including the National Magazine Award and the Society of American Travel Writers' Lowell Thomas Award. He is the author of nine books, one of which, Jaguars Ripped My Flesh. National Geographic named one of the 100 best adventure travel books ever written. Last but not least, Cahill is the co-writer of four IMAX documentaries, Two of which were nominated for Academy Awards. Welcome, Tim. <laughs> all right, I'm going to see if uh, let me see if I can play with the volume of this phone really quickly before we uh, before we get started, just to see if that helps at all. Okay, does that help at all? Can you hear me better? Nope. Nope. No change. All right. Well, everything is maxed out here on my end, so hopefully, like you said, we'll just uh, we'll just stumble stumble through. Okay. Uh so, uh, it's, uh, uh, how are things in Montana? <laughs> um,
1: it's, uh, absolutely gorgeous. It's the most beautiful place on earth to be in the summertime. The wintertime has some drawbacks.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, judging from social media, you've had a lot of guests lately.
1: Uh, yeah, well, we've had some guests, uh, and, uh, tomorrow my, uh, my cousin arrives. It's, yeah, everybody wants to come to Montana during the summertime.
0: Okay. So does that mean it's going to be hard for me to find a time to uh, show up?
1: Um, no, you can, we, we'll, we'll put you in between uh, some other things, and, and uh, oh, you'll get to go to my Spanish group, and you have to uh, be the uh, maestro on that
0: one. Okay. Yeah, I can handle. I can handle the Spanish group. So how's the how's the Spanish coming? Because I think we were talking about you had said you wanted to do this in Spanish. And I told you, I wasn't sure my audience would be able to handle that.
1: Uh, Que tal, Chico.
0: Que tal, pues bien. Pues bien, pues todo bien. Here's
1: here's what I'm learning today. Yeah. Uh, And I'll just give it to you. This is going to be very, this this information is going to be very, very valuable to me. Um, Should I ever become a penguin in a zoo in Barcelona?
0: Okay, which could happen.
1: All right. Hola. Somos Pedro y Carlos. Somos pingüinos. Vivimos en el zoo de Barcelona. Oh, yeah. Nuestra vida no está mal. Tenemos comida gratis y no tenemos que trabajar. Lo mejor de todo es que somos famosos. Ah. Cada día viene gente a vernos y hacernos fotos. That That was was pretty... Oh. Uh, There. All
0: right. So the the penguins wear sunglasses in Barcelona, and they're very famous. I understood it all.
1: (laughs) Well, it's simply because of my impeccable accent.
0: Well, that's, that's the thing. The accent was impeccable. The only issue there is, you know, penguins in Barcelona might actually speak Catalan
1: might I have to do what? I
0: can't hear. The, the penguins in Barcelona might actually speak Catalan instead of Spanish. Uh,
1: uh Yeah, yeah. Well, at least these penguins are... are uh,
0: They're bilingual at least. ...the
1: story least. that I'm trying to uh, work on right now. They, they really need to escapar.
0: Oh, no. The penguins are trying to escape the zoo in so, Barcelona.
1: Uh, es, el zoo es muy abarito.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't like zoos either. Actually, all right. Well, that's. Uh, I'm glad to see that you're. Ex-
1: Pedro and Carlos.
0: Pedro and Carlos. Well, I'm glad to see that you're expanding your uh, story writing skills into other languages. That's uh, something.
1: I'll ever be able to write in Spanish. I had a, I had a fantasy that one day I would be able to do it, but the more I learned, the more I realized that the the complex nuances just escape me.
0: Well, that's what translators are for. Did you hear me? That's what translators are for. Uh, that's what, what that's translators what, are for. That's okay. what translators yeah. are for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, your writing in English. You said, "quote I wanted to be a writer from my early teenage years, but I never told anyone. Writers, in my opinion, were godlike creatures, and to say I was striving to be a writer would be incredibly arrogant." Now I got that quote. From Brainy Quote, so I don't know if you actually said that, but it sounds like something you could have said, because they didn't cite it.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's something that I've said and something that I've often felt. Uh, You know, I grew up in uh, Wisconsin, small town, Waukesha, Wisconsin, um, and there was nobody that made a living as a writer. So uh, I had no one to base my, uh, my life's trajectory upon. And uh, uh, I was going to do it, but as, as I said, I never told anybody, um, well, because it just seemed to be narcissistic. I, I, you know, writers, writers were, uh, I, I loved reading so much that I believed writers were godlike creatures. Now, unfortunately... Three quarters of my friends are writers, and I guarantee you, we are not godlike preachers.
0: Oh no! So the mystique has been has been ruined.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've been doing it almost 40, 50 years, so I'm used to
0: it. Yeah. So that's that's long enough to get a, a picture of of, of the, what's uh, what's really going on there. So let's go back to the uh, the 40 or 50 years. You started in investigative journalism. You told. Mother Jones, that early on, you didn't know what you wanted to write, so you did a lot of investigative journalism, and that included a stint that began in 1971 at Rolling Stone. But you got your start in travel writing by lying down and playing dead to attract turkey vultures.
1: Um, on Mount Tamalpais.
0: Yes. So what so one, was that one, about? One
1: can do that uh, to this very day. Just find the meadow somewhere on Tamalpais and lie still. Uh-huh. Out in the open,
2: yeah,
1: and the vultures will begin to circle over you, wondering whether you're dead or not, <laughs> and that's my personally engineered form of birdwatching.
0: Okay, but for, but first of all, vultures eat carrion. So did you? I mean, did you have to make your smell yourself smell badly enough to convince them that you were dead? No, you just
1: have to be still long enough.
0: That's all it takes. Yep. Huh. Okay, so you didn't lose any dates out of this experiment.
1: No, I, I didn't do that.
0: Did it not occur to you maybe to go down to Big Sur and offer yourself to the condors?
1: Um, you know, in those days, uh, the condors weren't back.
0: I wondered about that, actually. Yeah, I wondered about that. Okay, so you could do it now, though.
1: Yeah. Although I, I I did hang around condors quite a bit um, down in southern Patagonia, in, uh, near Torres del Paine. Uh, and it was interesting to watch them because uh, they're essentially big, big, big vultures. Right. Um, but the deal is when they land on something, they have to be watching for um, predators, pumas and, and, and the like, because it takes them a long time to get off the ground. Really? So they can easily be caught. So
0: interesting. They,
1: Spend a lot of time circling around to see that there's it's safe to come down and
0: okay. feast
1: on the carrion.
0: Interesting. I did not. Yeah, I guess because they're so big, they sort of need to get a running start.
1: Yeah, they need to get a running start. They uh, mostly they prefer to sit on uh, high rocky crags so they can just fall off and be airborne.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you have, uh, so you've got your relationship with the turkey vultures, but then you also have a contentious relationship. I I, I read with Woodsy the owl, who you called a noxious muppet.
1: <laughs> I I just like to make fun of Woodsy.
0: Well, why the anger with an owl who's just trying to get kids to give a hoot and not to pollute? Um, the,
1: the owl wears a feather in his cap. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's. Owl wears a feather in his cap. That's like a human being wearing a severed finger in
0: his cap that is kind of gross isn 't it wrong that is wrong that is wrong. you know what I think you may have just convinced me I think you may have just convinced me um, and then of course, the most famous instance of your sort of um, you know issues with birds is um, you know you were pect, pecked to death pecked to death by ducks um yep and you know so there's that and then there's A Wolverine is Eating My Leg is another title and then of course Jaguars Ate My Flesh is another title seems to me that you sort of your titles sort of established a trend in travel writing books because it seems many travel writers have followed with titles that are suspiciously similar in spirit to yours so where did you come up with this uh, this sort of naming convention this way of naming uh, some of your books
1: well um You have to cast your mind back, and um, many of your listeners, I'm certain, are not old enough to do this, Um, to the late 60s and mid-70s, where you went to a barbershop with a barber pole in it, and on the uh, uh, desk in front of you for reading material would be um, uh, magazines with titles like Saga, um, Adventure for Man, Man's Adventure... Um, and these were all; these were called the post-war pulp, and they were very um, uh, popular at the time. Uh, and they had adventure stories in them. Uh, usually on the cover, there was a guy uh, running through the jungle with a ripped shirt shirt on, and uh, and and he was dragging along behind him a woman with a shirt. Even more strategically ripped, um, and, and they were uh, illustrations. And they would have titles like Our Death Race with the Legend- Legendary Jungle Leper Army. And they would have stories about people being um, attacked by bloodthirsty penguins at the North Pole, which, well, I, I'm not going to have to say this, am I? Penguins (laughs) at the North Pole?
0: Uh huh. They're in the Barcelona Zoo.
1: There there were certain indications that might uh, give you the idea that these uh, stories weren't all the way legit. Uh huh. Somebody was making them up in an office in New York, somebody who thought they were penguins at the North Pole who were bloodthirsty. Um, So. When we were trying to come up with the idea of a outdoor magazine uh, in San Francisco, you know, just picture three young editors in a former coffee factory with every outdoor magazine uh, in existence piled against the wall, and we're li- looking at them, and we're saying, what do they lack? And the major thing that they lacked was some kind of literary journalism. Uh I mean, actually well-written stories about the out-of-doors, well-researched. And so that was... Now, it seems like a slam dunk now. But 1976, a literary journal about the out-of-doors? The the, the pundits... uh, pummeled us. I mean, because it was it was a well-known fact that literary, people who read literary stuff don't go outdoors. I mean, they're...
0: They're too busy uh, reading. People
1: who go outdoors are just knuckle-dragging mouth-breathers. I mean, <laughs> why are you getting, uh, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners to write stories for you because it's just being wasted right. on that kind of audience? Meanwhile, um, I said... Why don't we have a kind of adventure story in each issue? Well, my two uh, friends, who Michael Fear, uh, Harriet Fear, and Michael Rogers, both of them said that's not the kind of stuff we want to have in here. That's that's the stuff of men's journal, adventure for man. Uh, uh, you know the. And I said, well, yeah, but see, these are these are like um, uh, gratuitous chest-beating heroes that are uh, in these stories. And, and what if you put somebody who could write a coherent English sentence and was able to understand the core of wonder of seeing a tiger shark? Uh, while diving and didn't necessarily have to pull out a pen knife and battle it to death in gouts of blood um, and could come and write about that and my friend Harriet Bear said well Tim you do that there you go uh, it, it, but Michael and Harriet were not sure that such things would work so, so the titles of my book were Really, just kind of a a little poke to Harriet and to Michael saying, Hey, look, this is the kind of stuff that was in the post war pulp. They always had titles like Jaguars Ripped My Flesh. Well, why don't, because I've done these adventure stories and they are, some even call them literary. I'm going to give it a title to show you guys that all those years ago, I was right. So, Jaguars Ripped My Flesh um, was kind of almost a generic title for one of those post-war pulp. A Wolverine is Eating My Leg actually came from one... I liked it in the present tense right there.
0: Yeah, I like it's that too. my leg right now. Right, exactly. Uh, exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> that actually came from one of those... Uh, magazines um, Peck to Death by Ducks I thought okay the joke has gone on far enough let's just you know do Peck to Death by Ducks uh, and uh, finally I did one that I wanted to actually have the uh, uh, the content described by the title uh-huh. so I told my publisher I wanted to call it Remote Journeys Oddly Rendered. Yes. And they said, Well, wait a minute. All your books have an animal that causes you some discomfort.
2: You're breaking we with your do brand. Like that. Yeah.
1: So I said, Okay. We'll call it past the butterworms. Now, I'm I'm gonna tell you a secret. Okay. There are no such things as butterworms. There aren't. No. (laughs) So, but uh, the publisher said, well, how do butterworms cause you distress? And I said, have you ever eaten a big (laughs) pile of butterworms? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. To which they said, "Okay, we'll call it that." There so, you
0: go. And but but, but they didn't. that's
1: why the titles have the odd names.
0: Okay, but did did these editors have any idea that butterworms do not exist? No. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right. So the titles might sometimes include a touch of drama and that hyperbole. And like I said, they kind of set a trend for that. There are a lot of books that that followed. That was you might have repurposed that from those other books, but clearly it caught on and you gave it a whole, you gave those titles a whole new life. Um, but the reality is you have in fact, nonetheless, been in your share of dangerous situations. And what's more, it seems to benefit your writing. You said, quote, I seem to do my best work when stimulated by vaguely threatening, vaguely threatening situations. And then, of course, you said, you know, what I found in writing my stories is that it was always best if something goes wrong. And I've I've talked on this show about that before, notably with uh, Bob Holmes, photographer Bob Holmes, about this idea that it helps if things go wrong. You don't want things to go wrong on the one hand because they're going yeah, wrong.
1: And, and, it's, and it's cheating right. to uh, 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 have something go wrong. To plan on having something go wrong. Right. You you plan on uh, yes, we will encounter obstacles. We will overcome obstacles, but you don't have an obstacle like an obviously um, uh, inexperienced and uh, uh, disagreeable traveling companion. That you know that just so I can write about what a, uh, you know, disagreeable person this is. Right. You don't do that. No, you you, you you get the very best people that you can to go with you, and then they come become disagreeable.
0: <laughs> exactly. Have you ever been on a trip where nothing, quote-unquote, went wrong, and you found yourself struggling for a story?
2: Oh
1: no (laughs) mostly mostly things went wrong right Uh, right it's we a a lot of the stories we do um, I did with my friends were um, uh, nobody that we knew had been in the area we didn't have uh, a lot of information we had to make it up as we went along and yeah sometimes things went really uh, pleasantly and managed to get our uh, uh, our story but uh, we always had to overcome obstacles
0: right right you go one and step, I step. You an go example, ahead yeah example. sure
1: um, I was going to uh, what's called now West Papua with Erie and Jaya there was a um, there was some kind of political upheaval going on and we couldn't really go to Wamina where we planned to go. Instead, we went to the Asmot Swamps, the largest swampland in the world, went to a museum and found, oh, look at these masks and look at these uh, canoe paddles. They're from the Karawai people who are a couple of hundred miles upriver and uh, uh, had just been contacted by the outside world in the last year. Wow, that's a story. Okay, let's figure out how to get 500 miles up the river and walk through the swamp to get to these people, and we did. And I recall uh, very clearly they live in trees with about 50-foot ladders to get up into the trees, and we're down below yelling through three different languages to uh, see if we are going to be allowed to come up, and we were, and I met people um, who, literally had bones in their noses and uh and uh dressed in uh dressed they had penis sleeves Uh, there you go Women had grass skirts Uh, uh, and we went up and talked to them for a while and it was as far back in time i mean this was this was hardly even the stone age because there's no stones in the swamp they had to trade with outside groups to get stone axes and and it, it, to me, it was a wondrous adventure traveling back in uh, in, in history and in time to uh, meet these people. And it was only uh, a couple weeks later when I got home that I found out that that's where I got my malaria. Oh. So <laughs> the, the malaria has, has deviled me. 25 years now, but um, uh, uh, the uh, you know, uh, that that obstacle didn't happen happily. Didn't happen until I got back to uh, Montana, where 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 they're sort of unused to uh, treating malaria, actually.
0: Oh, so that that was a bit of a challenge. Getting getting the treatment was a bit of a challenge. Then when you got back.
1: Matthew, I'm 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 having trouble hearing
0: you. Uh, so, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. So I said getting treatment for the malaria was a little challenging in Montana. Uh,
1: it was at first, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I um, <laughs> I ran into an infectious diseases guy uh, at at the new hospital, and he said hey, they didn't give you such-and-such such a drug? And I said, no, no, not 25 years ago. They said, well, well, it'll knock out your malaria. So uh, for the last six months, I've been malaria-free.
0: Okay, so wait, you're saying the malaria has, you've, you've had malaria for 25 years, essentially?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> what happens is you have, um, what happens to me, I had the kind called DVAC. And uh, what happens to me is uh, you start shivering and uh, actually convulsing. And then you probably can't stand up anymore and you go to bed and uh, then you have fever dreams. And fever dreams, by by the second or third time you have it, you realize, oh, the fever dreams are really bad. So let's, uh, let's treat this like an acid trip. We're going to think positive thoughts.
0: <laughs> right. Just
1: fever things. So you'd have, um, I'd have better dreams uh, than I originally uh, had when I first had. And then the third episode, each, each, each part of the malaria uh, lasted about two hours for me. So convulsions, fever dreams. And then you lie there recovering, and you sweat through, I can sweat through two terry cloth ropes. Now, occasionally, early on, I was on a 24-hour cycle. You know, I would, I would go a month without malaria, and then I would be on a 24-hour cycle. And you'd wake up in the morning, and you think, well, I'm okay. you go out with your friends, and then it'd be 4 o'clock. Oh, shit, time to have my malaria. All right, I'll see you guys tomorrow. i got to go have malaria now.
0: Really? And, uh... And this has gone on for twenty-five years.
1: Yeah, but it it, it was um, it was getting better and better, and I seldom, uh, you know, there was there were periods where I went years without um, an attack. Wow! And and just in the last six months, I started having them again. And huh. I talked to the infectious diseases guy, and he said, "Yeah, we got a pill that uh, we got pills to knock that stuff out now." Wow! I said, oh, I thought, I thought you had it forever. No, take these pills. So, that, I'm malaria-free now well, until I go back to some malarial country.
0: Yeah, well, congratulations, I guess. I had no idea that, that it worked that way. I didn't know that if you, got, if you actually got the malaria, that it hung around like that. I, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> it hung around. 25 hung around years. Damn. And i got to
1: tell you a story. It was, back in 1991, I was going to the North Pole on a Russian icebreaker, and somewhere about the 88th or 89th degree, I mean just short of the North Pole, I came down with malaria. (laughs) The ship's doctor came in, and he says, I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but I've never treated anybody for malaria at 88 degrees.
0: Seriously, malaria at the North Pole, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's a story right there. All right, so you you have been in a lot of these extraordinary situations, but one recurring theme in your work or at least your interviews is the idea that you're not necessarily endowed with attributes or skills that make you particularly suited. So for example, I mean more so maybe than someone else. You said you have to know that I wasn't an outdoorsy kind of guy. And then you said, you know, I was never Superman. As my expeditionary friends will tell you, I'm sort of a doofus. I screw up now and again and I laugh at myself a lot because when everyone else is laughing at you, the best thing is abject surrender is all part of the story. So how does not being Superman in some of these superhuman situations help with the story that comes out of these some of these situations?
1: It, it, uh, it really helps. in... Uh, you, you would think that... To go on lots of expeditions to various parts of the world, um, it would help to be sort of an alpha male, a big, you know, strong, I command right. kind of guy. Right. But it really doesn't work on an expedition. Expedition, you got to work with people and let somebody have their way uh, on occasion. And also, and this I've found in almost. Any place in the world that is a um, uh, really pre-technological kind of society, uh, you know, mud huts, a Siberian village, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, you walk in, and here's the way it happens. The The first people that come out, usually, are the young, strong, and teenage kind of guys. And you might not understand the language, but you get the gist of what they're saying. They're making big fun of you. (laughs) But you pretend to be totally confused. Uh, uh, And somewhat later, the older men will come out, and behind them will be the women. What you do is there's the... There's the people making fun of you. You're looking confused. And you look with your confused face to the older man, the guy you think might be the head man of the village, the head uh, of the village. And you make questioning gestures. And then he quiets down the other people. And uh, and suddenly uh, you're all friends because hey, they don't have color TV. You're the color TV for that night, and uh, people are going to come out and talk to you and uh, find out uh, uh, what kind of uh, person you are, where you're from, uh, what you like, and that's the way you do it. Uh, If you are an alpha male who decides that, I am not going to let these teenagers insult me, I'm going to call them uh, sons of goats and... uh, Whatever kind of insult I have in this
0: language, um, that doesn't work. Right, right. Lessons for uh, lessons we could apply in lots of different contexts today, perhaps. Um, yeah. So let's move on to uh, to humor because uh, situ- or uh, something that can help in those situations, of course, and another difficult or whatever kind of situations in humor is humor. And one of the great pleasures that when I started reading your book and of course what you're no or books and what you're known for is, is your humor. And, uh, and you know, there are a lot of very accomplished writers out there known for their humor. And I, sometimes it works with your own particular sense of humor. Sometimes it doesn't. I think, I think you're very funny. And that was, like I said, that was a real pleasure when I started reading your books, but I hear over and over, it's hard to write humor. It's hard to write humor, you know. I, people say that, writers say that a lot. So any thoughts on how to write humor? How much of it is learned versus natural talent? And just any, any thoughts on how how to be funny on the written page?
1: You know, Matthew, I, that's a really difficult but um, uh, important question. And I basically ask, sometimes people ask me, how do I be funny? Right. And I say... Well, are you funny in your day to day life? People say exactly. you're funny. If you're not, perhaps being funny is a gift. Um, and if you don't have it, that doesn't mean you can't be a writer. There's plenty of writers that are great writers who uh, are not uh, laugh a minute kind of uh, men or women, you know. Right. Uh, it, in. In my writing, I often find uh, that I want to write a very, very intense couple of paragraphs. That they're, they they're they're paragraphs that are very important, very intense to me, and I know that I'm making them intense to the reader. And I've gotten them all tense and you can pop that that, that that stretch that stretching elastic band of things by a simple act of humor um, you know uh, it, it may be a single paragraph at the end or a single sentence single sentence paragraph at the end of three or four, five very intense paragraphs and it breaks the tension and it makes people laugh, it's not particularly funny in itself it's funny in the context of the story
0: and the and element as a matter of surprise fact,
1: I find this. people say I'm funny and uh, I I found this uh, I've seen somebody say oh well, what are you laughing at oh this Tim Cahill story he said that this and and the person listening says well what's funny about that uh-huh. There's nothing funny about that, really, uh-huh. until you know the whole story behind it. Right. I'm not a guy who, you know, has a uh, uh, is is good at writing one-liners. That it's only funny in the context of the story, and I often use it to break tension. To uh, uh, I want. I, I've, I've always had this. I used to say, if you can make them laugh and make them cry in the same story, you've created an illusion of depth. Uh huh. And as time has gone by, I have changed that formulation. If you can make them laugh and cry in the same story, you've created depth. Uh
0: huh. I like that. I like that. So speaking of depth, here's another quote. This is a little bit more about process, but changing gears and going a little deeper. You said, quote, and this is in your uh, your recent article, My Drowning and Other Inconveniences from Outdoor, um, last September. One of the things you said is, quote, I think the act of losing yourself in the work, any work, is much akin to Eastern meditative states. And then you also said, when I'm writing and in the flow... I often have no idea where the e- that element of the story just came from and why the piece wants to finish the way it demands to finish. I just pulled that stuff down out of that blinding curve of energy, the great story arc. So tell us about that meditative state.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, this is about <laughs> as mystical as you'll ever hear me get. I know, let's go there. <coughs> Excuse me, I... I have a sense. I don't know where I go when I'm writing. When I'm, you know, it, it doesn't work the first half hour when you're sitting down because everything you write during the first half hour is terrible. It's awful. It's, it's, it's And then something happens. And maybe three hours go by. And you've got a lot of good stuff. And where did that all come from? Um, uh, that's why I... I have an idea. I have a direction that the story is going to go. I have an idea of where, uh, what scenes I'm going to put in, and maybe just about where they go. But I do not have an outline, which I think kills that creativity. Where you are, where you are just looking at the story arc. Now, what is the story arc? I think we human beings are storytelling. Creatures. We told stories around the fires in the Stone Age. We told stories. uh, uh, Homer told his uh, uh, stories vocally. Um, uh, Gutenberg helped us with the press. And uh, uh, now we've got the internet. The Lord knows uh, what it is. But I'm going to tell you that whatever happens, stories will be important. Stories is how we perceive our world we have so much information coming into us that we have to leave some out and put the important stuff in and do an arrow that shows us the direction of what this story means people okay just for me just for me sure there, there are people that can write argumentative essays that can move you but i believe that you need to write a story people remember a story and the story is what moves you and you do not necessarily and I've had arguments with editors all my life about this you do not necessarily have to tell the uh, reader what the story means mm-hmm. They can figure it out and people are sometimes insulted by being slapped in the face with the wet mackerel. Of an explanation. Yes. You just let it, that's what the story means, it's there, you take it whatever way you
0: want. Well, you said, uh, quote, at least, again, this is from Braining quote. so I don't know how much I can trust this. You tell me if you actually said this or not, but it's a great quote either way, and if you didn't say it, just take credit for it. The quote is, mystery is a resource, like coal or gold and its preservation is a fine thing, which seems to tie into kind of where you were going just then with not necessarily having to spell everything out. But mystery is a resource like coal or gold, and its preservation is a fine thing. Any, any thoughts on that?
1: that? Yeah. A, I did say that. All right, good. And B, it goes, um, thank you for that, because it goes directly to what I was saying about uh, that thing. But see, see, the story arc, the story arc that I'm talking about is that, that arc of story that connects us as human beings, all stories. I mean, I love when I go to remote places, I love to hear people's creation myths. I seldom write about it, but I just want to hear what their creation myth is.
2: and mm-hmm.
1: Because that's the story that uh, begins to tell me what... These people feel and how they see the world, um, and we all, you know, we're in we're in the story arc. Um, as soon as you're born, your your parents start telling stories about you, right. and you're in the story arc now. And when you have children, you tell stories about them, and they're in the story arc. And people talk about your exploits or the things that you did or your job or how you helped or how you didn't it's all in the story arc and when you are writing and you drift away and everybody who's written I don't care who you are if you never even graduated from high school but you had to write a story at a certain point you drifted away and that's when your story got good. You uh-huh. were pulling stuff
0: down from the story arc. Right, right. And you said, yeah, all of those experiences, you said, and that all becomes part of the human story. It folds into the great story arc and alters it, if only very slightly. And there in that blinding curve of energy that lasts forever, that is where your soul resides. Yes. So now we're getting really deep. Oh,
1: uh, Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you, but you know, I, you wrote that after. So you didn't actually die pecked by ducks. That that didn't actually happen. That was one of your titles, but you did die uh, in the Grand Canyon. You you had a drowning yeah, incident. Well, just a little bit, just a little bit, right? You died just a little bit, um, like people being a little bit pregnant. But um, you know, I'm curious because you wrote that quote after that experience. Now,
1: yes, I wrote that after that experience. So I yeah, was thinking. Um, all right. Uh, just for the readers who are, or the listeners who are unfamiliar with this, I was in the Grand Canyon. I got tossed off of a raft. Um, I swam a long rapid, managed to get myself out of the water, walked about 15 or 20 steps, sat down, and then apparently fell over and died. Um, we had a wilderness EMT and a, and, a, um, and a registered nurse there. They couldn't find a pulse. There was no breathing. Uh, a lot of CPR. Um, I was, in the words of uh, the, uh, the EMT, unresponsive, which basically means dead. Right. Um, but apparently, sometime within seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, some people say more, I came back. I like to have, if I'm going to be dead, I like the longer period. You know, sure. Give me the 17-minute one. I you know, I
0: I read it was like 25 minutes that you were actually dead.
1: Yeah, well. <laughs> there, there's a lot of people. See, nobody took a nobody took a stopwatch.
0: They were busy with other things, so they perhaps. Were busy, yeah. Right. You
1: have to, you know, I'm I'm off on the beach. Somebody's got to run down and get the medical kit. They got to cut the um, uh, cut my personal flot- flotation bike device off. Uh, cut my um, Dry suit uh, up so they can get into my chest and do the work. So you know, nobody, nobody did. But here's the here's the problem. I was just out. I it wasn't black in there. It wasn't gray. It was just nothing. I did not see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. I did not see beckoning figures. I did not see beloved pets bounding across the Rainbow Bridge. I saw nothing. Right. And I just woke up to some guy literally breaking my ribs trying to do CPR and save my life. So, of course, I hit him.
0: Well, deservedly. He deserved it.
1: Yeah, he deserved
0: it. Right. All right, so we, we just... He
1: saved my
2: life, so I hit him.
0: Well... He didn't have to break your ribs to do it. He could have been a little more gentle, I would think. But So we, we just have a couple more minutes. But So just in, in sort of 60 seconds, because you didn't have those experiences with the pearly gates and the pets bounding across the Rainbow Bridge, did it not have nearly as profound an impact as it would have because you were just out and came back? Or did it register after the fact, even though you didn't have but that? Exactly int- it
1: had no, no impulse. No effect on me at all. Right. Um,
0: that's what it sounded I like.
1: I was a kid who played football back in the 60s in high school, and you got not, there was no concussion protocol. then. You got knocked out, and the coach said, "Yeah, you just got your bell wrong, son. Get up, walk it off. Let's go." Right. And that's that's exactly the way I felt about that. However, the other people, the other people on this trip were very much emotionally affected because they had to watch a person die. Right. They thought I was dead. Most people know that uh, CPR is effective in about 10% of the cases. They, was, they, they thought they had a dead guy. Right. And they uh, and when they saw a guy come back to life they were um, it changed a lot of them. It
2: yeah.
0: changed
1: a lot of the way they thought about the world.
0: Yeah, uh, I bet it did. He,
1: Change, but uh, I did, I was required, because I'd been declared dead, I was required to think about the soul and what I think about the soul, mm-hmm. and I'm not religious, but I think it's up there in that story
0: arc. All right, all right. Tim, we didn't even get to talk about travel, ironically. I have a whole other section of, I mean, we talked a lot about travel indirectly, but I had some even more speci- about some of your specific experiences, but I had some some even more specific questions. is. How's that for English? Questionses. Uh, so, I guess you can stick to your Spanish. I'm going to practice my English. But, um, before I let you go, and I do have to let you go, I wanted to uh, just let people know you're going to be at the Book Passage Conference, the Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference from August 9th to 12th here in in Corte in the Bay Area. And I believe you're going to be doing an advanced writing workshop there, if I'm not mistaken. Is that still? I will
1: do an advanced writing workshop. And may I say that um, I will be doing a workshop in Mexico. Uh, Your listeners can look up deeptravelworkshops.com, And I will be there uh, January
0: 7th through the 13th. (laughs) 7th, <laughs> yep, of 2019, January 7th to 13th, Mar- uh, not Morocco. Sorry, uh, Mexico Deep Travel Workshops dot com for the Book Passage Conference. You can go to bookpassage.com. And my last question for you: Why is there no Tim <laughs> Uh
1: yeah,
0: I don't know. <laughs> trust me. If,
1: I'm just uh, not a tech
0: ninja. <laughs> you know what? If you don't need it, it. trust me, it's just one less thing to maintain. So, yeah, if you don't need it, I, I would not recommend you get one just for the sake of having one. Good.
2: Thank you.
0: All right. So, Tim, thank you very much for calling in. I'm sorry we had a crappy connection, but I still really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate your time, and uh, I hope to do it again sometime soon. Anytime, Matthew. Thank you. It was fun. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thanks to you for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please help me spread the word. On my show page, you'll see many ways to share on social media. If you see a post on Facebook for an upcoming show that sounds good, please share that. It all really helps, and I really appreciate it. For more about me, my website is matthewfelix.com, and links to my social media books, audiobooks, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. Last but not least, if you have any comments, show ideas, or just want to say hello, you can email me at felixonair at matthewfelix.com. Thanks again for tuning in and until next time, have a great week.